Now, I did say in the, before the call to worship that you were allowed to nap today, but we are talking about sex and coarse language, so it might be more interesting than you think. <laughs> Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 7. I'm going to read it through, and then we'll set some context and move into it. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 7. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So generally speaking, as we move through Ephesians, it has been a steady flow of big, high-level, bold, beautiful ideas and truths, principally about what God has done for us in Christ, what we have in Christ, right, who we are, who God is, and as we move into the latter chapters of Ephesians, Paul begins to bring this grand vision down into addressing the issues that the Ephesians face, and we're getting now into some very explicit and clear warnings and limitations, and one of the uncomfortable truths, depending on which side of the fence you're on, is that genuine Christianity has both the positive and the negative, or prohibitions, thou shalt not, and visionary commands, thou shalt. Some choose a faith that is kind of all the positive stuff and none of the negative. We might call that permissive Christianity or easy believism. Uh, Others choose a faith that is kind of all negative and there's really no positive. It's all about scolding the sin out of you and just focusing on your sin and your wrongdoing. And there's very little about receiving from God and um, learning to walk in his love and um, uh, serving out of that place of forgiveness and acceptance. But true faith in Christ, and I think Ephesians bears this out, true faith in Christ will allow you to build a tension that allows you to hold on to both the positive aspects of faith, love here, serve here, receive this from God, and the negative so-called, flee from, don't, reject this, turn away from. And in this particular passage, Paul is taking these negative aspects of following Jesus, that following Jesus means you can't do these things, and he's making it very, very clear. So I just want to break it down so that we understand what's happening here. So in verse 3, coming out of two verses where he's talked about the importance of imitating Jesus, he says, But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people, right? You are holy. You are saints, Paul said early in Ephesians. So now you live out of that identity. You're no longer understood. Your self-identity is no longer sinner. You were a sinner. Now you're a saint. Now you live like a saint. And so we're to get rid of pornea, which is sexual immorality, That's, of course, the word from which we get pornography. Impurity, akatharsia, which just literally means anything that's not pure. And greed, pleonixia, 
which in this context is really almost a synonym for lust, this insatiable desire to have more, to um, allow one's sexual appetite to have free reign and then to consume bodies and people as if um, that's all they are. I mean, literally objectifying people and using them sexually in order to uh, attempt to satiate this desire within you. And Paul says there can't be a hint of any of these things. Now, this is a list of things that isn't a one-off for Paul in Ephesians. It occurs throughout a number of the letters that he writes to early Christians, which is kind of comforting because it shows us that, A, we're not the first group of Christians to live in a highly sexualized culture where one of the first things you have to get to when you talk about what it means to follow Jesus is sexual ethics and how we understand our bodies, how we use our bodies, what the purpose of sex is. Um, In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So you have a a number of those same, exact same terms coming up again. In Galatians 5.19, Paul lists pornea, and akatharsia, and asalgia, which is sensuality slash hedonism, the self-serving lifestyle where you basically just move towards whatever gives immediate sexual or pleasure gratification as the first explanations of the works of the flesh. So before he gets into the fruit of the spirit, he says, the works of the flesh are obvious. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery or greed. So there's the sense there that Paul is, has to consistently, the spirit through Paul, is putting this in front of Christians because this is, you know, no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. And this, these are issues that Christians have struggled with for 2,000 years, and it's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And then he says in verse 3, again, for emphasis, he says, of these things, sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, greed, there must not be even a hint of. Um, and the inference there is that this isn't something to sort of have kind of a loose uh, sort of acceptance of, right? It's like, well, yeah, the bar's up here and it's a pretty high deal, but eh, what are you going to do? Like, people are people, right? And as long as it doesn't get out of control, like, we'll just kind of understand. We're all sinners, right? Like, ooh, it, Paul, Paul's like, no. Like, there's zero tolerance policy. There's not even to be a hint of these things going on in our lives. Strong, strong language. And he says, because these are improper for God's holy people. And to borrow a metaphor he uses early in Ephesians, it's like, if you are a saint, you're supposed to wear the clothing of a saint. So you don't clothe yourselves in dirty rags and impure rags and in rags that reinforce to yourself and to the world that you are living in an idolatrous relationship where you're basically pursuing your own self-serving interests and not the interests of Christ. So these clothes of sexual immorality and impurity and greed, those don't fit someone who's a Christian. They're completely incompatible. Now already there might be people here who have kind of an instinctive reaction and certainly a lot of people in our culture would if they could hit the pause button right now and say, see, this is exactly why I don't go to church. This is why I stay. I don't touch Christianity with a 10-foot pole. Um, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? Like, 
That sexual sin seems to get magnified in such a disproportionate way to other sins. This is why I don't like Christianity. There's been so much sexual repression from within the church. It's only been an, an immediate association of, or the church seems to only talk about sex when it's trying to leverage shame or guilt upon people. Guilt, feeling guilty about what you've done, and shame potentially being even more damaging because it's about condemning who you are in your very essence. And there would even be voices within the church that would say Christianity needs to be a lot more sex positive and talk about sex and sexual ethics from a much more affirming point of view. And I think that there is definitely some truth there. There have been uh, phases of church life where the only time and the only context we've talked about sex is in the context of this is something either dangerous or hopefully not, but some people have picked up the message, evil or wrong, and therefore we don't do it. And, and it's kind of like, it's okay in marriage, but we don't even really talk about that or celebrate that. So our entire association is either like, uh, we don't really talk about it at all, so it's kind of suspicious and strange and foreign and certainly not a front burner issue of discipleship, or it's a front burner issue of discipleship because we're just emphasizing again and again, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But we have to also understand the Bible has very strong statements about the power of sexuality. There's kind of three arenas of life that if you go from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you will see these themes come up again and again and again. Money, sex, power. Those are the three arenas of life that you will be battling to honor God through your life with for in your entire life. Some of us more than others. Some of those uh, arenas will be more difficult for some of us to navigate than others. But money, sex, and power comes up again and again in Scripture because what you do with those three things has a disproportionate formative effect on your life. How you handle your body and your sexuality, how you handle wealth, the resources that God has given you, and how you handle power are deeply, deeply formative arenas of life. And so the Bible cycles in and through those things again and again and again because our activity in those areas do have a disproportionate effect on our lives, for good or ill. You handle those things well, and broadly speaking, the proverb says you will be blessed. Your cup will runneth over if you know how to navigate money, sex, and power progressively to the glory of God. And if you ignore God's teachings, and if you say, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, I'll navigate these waters by myself. Scripture says you're a fool, and don't be surprised if your life from the inside out begins to unravel in ways that you would not have anticipated. And it's not because money, sex, and power are bad or evil or wrong. It's because they're just so dense with kavod, with glory, the glory of God. These are very, very important foundational pieces of life. And so the Bible's message when it comes to sex is not, oh, sex is evil or bad or wrong. It's sex is powerful. And it's powerfully good. And it's not just an appetite so that our posture toward it should be, well, if you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're sexually excited, you, you satiate that appetite however you want. As long as it's consensual, that, that's fine. The Bible does not instruct us to teach, not instruct us to view our um, sex drive and our libido as simply an appetite to be uh, satiated, but a gift to be stewarded and to be directed towards God's glory 
and to be directed towards true and genuine pleasure. But it's easy to misread the Bible or depending on who you listen to or um, what gets emphasized from the pulpit to hear the Bible's warnings about sex as anti-body, right? anti-physicality, anti-pleasure, anti-sex. Uh, but that's a misreading, that's a misunderstanding and it will lead to a misapplication. Sex is a very good gift of God and it is a gift from God. And beyond just the exchange of physical pleasure, sex is a powerful source or can be a powerful source of healing in our lives. It can be a powerful source of pleasure, encouragement, and renewal within marriage. But when it's pursued outside of that context, it's always wrong and it's always sinful because the Bible says you sin against your own body and in that way you distort the nature of your own self-understanding of this gift and you're also participating with some other person in that distortion. And that distortion leaves a wake of consequences that might not be immediately discernible in the moment. Ecclesiastes says the pleasure of sin has its season. In the moment, sex will be pleasurable. But sex outside of the context of a covenantal promised relationship, high trust relationship, will, um, will slowly undo your personhood and the personhood of the other person in a way that isn't always discernible in the short term but plays out in the long term. If you read the Bible, you will discover a view of sex in the whole Bible um, that challenges maybe what most of us think of as the religious view of sex that's repressive and we don't talk about it. We're hesitant to kind of celebrate it because that might entice people to do it. Um, We don't want to be too embracing of the goodness of sex because if we talk about it too much, that's just going to inflame passion. The Bible will counter that. The Bible over and over celebrates the covenantal renewal ceremony that is sexuality between a man and a woman inside of marriage over and over in ways directly and in ways indirectly in the Bible. But the Bible's view will also counter the dominant cultural zeitgeist that I think exists today that views uh, sex as, certainly in some uh, cases, almost indistinguishable from simply just a recreational activity, right? What are your hobbies? My hobbies are on a Friday night, I access Tinder, I find someone, we hook up. It's totally consensual, like we both know there's no promises made, we're, we're, we're consensually using each other and that, like that's fine, right? I mean, that is the way, um, maybe not all, but certainly significant voices in our culture are taught to view sex, that as long as it's physically safe and consensual, then it's okay and it's an arena to be entered into. But the Bible says sex is not simply a physical act, and so therefore, physically safe sex, which does not have the safety, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, in terms of your own personhood and identity that comes from sex being shared and expressed within a covenant relationship, is never safe. It's never without consequence. And the scripture will Um, push us into having a very high view of sex that doesn't allow us to demean sex, but neither will it allow us to only talk about sex as if it's something negative or scary or dangerous. It's beautiful and it's good, but we have to understand only within a certain context. And I admit, I know that for many people today, maybe even for many Christians who are um, younger demographically even than me, 
these biblical boundaries for sexuality within a marriage between a man and a woman, those can, I understand why that strikes people as overly restrictive, because it is pretty restrictive. But I want you to think about it this way. And this is an illustration I borrowed from Timothy Keller, and I think it's a good one. If tomorrow you were given the Mona Lisa, not a print, like the actual one, what would you do with it? If you're given the Mona Lisa, the actual piece of art, you're now in possession of more or less a priceless artifact. And my suspicion is, if you have deep, if you have a deep and abiding appreciation for art, for the history of art, you understand the context of the Mona Lisa and why it's considered priceless. One of the first things that you're gonna do, because this has now been entrusted to you, you are now stewarding it, you're gonna come up with a bunch of rules very quickly to figure out who gets to see it, under what conditions, where, right? You're likely not going to just set it out in your porch as a display, be like, hey, when you come by my house, there you go. You're not gonna stake it into your front lawn and expose it to the elements. Why not? You're not gonna do those things because you have such a high view of the art. Your high view of the art compels you to make many restrictions, not because the art is bad, but because it's so valuable. And because you're called to steward it, it's not just for you, it's for someone else. And so therefore, you don't get to just handle the Mona Lisa in a way that seems right to you. And the Bible has, yes, lots of rules around sex, but it's not because it has a low view of sex. If the Bible had a low view of sex, then it would just be like, yeah, it's not a big deal. As long as there's consent, have at it and you know, kind of be halfway responsible. Or you'd get Gnostic teachings that would come in that would be dualistic in nature, that would say, well, Christianity is about the soul and about the spirit, but our earthly life is just like in a completely, it's a, it's a split. So Jesus came to save our soul, but what you do with your body doesn't really matter because what matters is the soul or your heart. So honor Jesus with your heart, honor Jesus with your soul. He can be Lord and Savior over those, the spiritual part of you, but the physical part of you, eh, you can kind of do what you want. But the entire thrust of the New Testament teaching on sexuality goes in the other direction. You have been bought with a price, not your soul, you, Paul writes in, Ro in Romans, therefore, honor God with your body. Every part of the dimensionality of who you are, you're called to honor God with. And that in ma many ways starts with how you use your body to access pleasure. Reflecting on the high view of sex, Christian psychologist John White writes the following. He says, erotic pleasure is only the most superficial benefit of sex. It is a delight, but it's only the delight of a moment. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies it can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing because it symbolizes the uncovering of our inner selves, our deepest fears and yearnings. And as I look tenderly on the body of another, as I experience what it is to feel the tenderness of another's caress and the delight of knowing that I am loved as well as loving, it seems momentarily impossible to separate myself from my body so much that I am a bodily creature that the one who accepts my body caresses also my tenderness 
and my innermost being. And so at times it seems. And it makes sense then, he writes, that sexual relations be confined to marriage for acceptance and mutual disclosure are not the activities of a moment, but the delicate fabric of a life's weaving. And so each time that sexual relation springs from casual encounters, something of their healing and life-giving nature gets destroyed. Biblically speaking, sex is a very sacred, beautiful act because it's an act of covenant renewal within a marriage. It's meant to offer a glimpse, Paul will write in Ephesians, into the relationship between Christ and his church. And because of this high view of sex in our bodies, any activity that is misaligned with this vision needs to be confronted seriously and urgently. And that's why when Paul says, among you, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality, he uses the word pornea, which is not in our lexicon just referring to pornographic material. Pornea was a first century term that meant any form of sexual engagement or sex play outside of a covenantal relationship between man and woman. It was a blanket umbrella term. It wasn't referring to any one particular um, act, but any expression of um, giving and receiving sexual pleasure outside of a covenant relationship. And then Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, nor should there be any obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Obscenity um, is a word that means, uh, tries to convey that which is shameful or lewd or disgraceful. Foolish talk in the Greek is morologia, Logia is speech. Moro is from which we get moron. It's moron speech. So it just suggests speech of a fool, of someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. And coarse joking is a word that refers to kind of um, witty, kind of vulgar joking. It's not necessarily, kind of like double entendres and sort of like um, crude, coarse, alluding to things, but you're, you know, joking that brings sex and sexuality and, and deviant kinds of sexuality to the forefront, but it's all in good fun because it's just a joke. And so all of these are being tied directly to a high view of sex. So it's not like Paul's saying, okay, here's what you don't want to do with sex, and then, oh, okay, I'm shifting now into speech. He's specifically tying them together and saying, not only are we careful about what we do with our bodies because of our high view of sex as Christians. We're very restrictive on how we even talk about sex. We don't even joke about it in a way that would lead to its degradation or diminishment. We are to talk about it through the lens of thanksgiving, to say, isn't this a beautiful gift? Isn't this an amazing gift? Isn't this special? Um, I accessed uh, eight to 10 uh, Netflix comedy specials that were released in the last three years. Um, tried to get female comics, male comics. Uh, generally speaking, um, I'd say you can't go about five minutes into the special, for not all of them, but most of them, without a pretty lewd, coarse, um, degrading joke about sex. Sometimes it's at the speak the. <clears throat> The speaker's expense, self-deprecating humor, right? Stories about a, a one-night stand gone wrong or different things. 
Um, but it's amazing that so much of comedy today relies on these three things. And not even just lewd and crass humor, but specifically targeting sex. And what I did find interesting is it seemed to me that at least some of the female comics that I watched, that was amped up a little bit more than even the male comics. And so I don't know if they were trying to be in competition with who could be more lewd and more crass, but across uh, many different uh, uh, specials or shows, um, again, you, you certainly, for many of them, you couldn't go five minutes in. For most of them, you couldn't go 15 minutes in without a crude, vulgar joke that came at the expense of a high view of sex. Now, someone's going to hear that and they're going to say, it's just joking around. Like, surely, like, humor is not a bad thing. And like, joking about sex is not like the end of the world, right? Well, let's think about it this way. First of all, this is not about Christians shouldn't have wit, Christians shouldn't use humor, we're not allowed to joke around. This is a very specific application, the coarse joking, the obscenity, tied to talking about sex in a very coarse and demeaning way. So this isn't about humor, generally speaking. This is highly sexualized and vulgar humor. And you might say, what's the big deal if we talk like that about sex? And if, we, if, I, if I were to sit down and watch these specials and be like, oh, it's kind of funny, it's hilarious. And that, I'm not going to run out and do that kind of thing, but it's funny to hear other people's stories about it. I read uh, quite a few reflections on that this week, and probably the one idea that I'd want to put before us, and I think it's true, is that humor generally speaking, can make us vulnerable to degrading our moral stance on things. Someone asked, have you ever been able to made, have you ever been made to laugh at something which in a different context is no laughing matter, but because the person actually used such witty humor, it caused you to laugh? And they said, the issue there is if you laugh long enough at what is evil, your moral perception will begin to be distorted. And you will not be able to, I, I believe, you will not be able to retain a high view of sex if you're consistently, whether or not you're participating, even just to be participating and receiving language about sex that is constantly lowering it to the level of base animal instinct. It will just be impossible. So there is a warning there, and God's word makes that warning clear. Be very careful about what you expose yourself to and what you participate in and the kind of jokes that you tell. Good humor is a gift from God, but we can use our humor to glorify God, and we can use our humor to distort the good things of God that we actually should be giving thanks to. Right? Paul says, don't let this obscene talk come out of your mouth in reference to sex, but rather thanksgiving. And the word that he uses there is eucharistia, the Eucharist. Give thanks. This is a special gift from God. Talk about sex in a way with your children, with your spouse, with other people. Talk about it in a way that dignifies it, upholds it, lifts it up, honors it, and places it as a place of um, something sacred and good and beautiful created by God. And then Paul says, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Okay, here's the statement that kind of drops like a bomb. Because if you read through this passage, it can very easily sound like Paul is saying, if you have sin in your life of sexual immorality, porneia, 
any expression of sexual engagement outside of marriage, or you joke um, and, and um, engage in or listen to a lot of uh, really demeaning, vulgar humor around sexuality, then you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God, and that has consequences because kingdom of God has kind of a, a dual emphasis in the New Testament. It, can't, it means both God's kingdom established now as we learn to live under the rule and reign of God. Sometimes the kingdom of God is used as that language. I'm, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want your kingdom to, be, to come in my life. But it also refers to the coming kingdom that will be fully established when Jesus returns. So kind of like the lowercase k kingdom that comes in our lives as we obey Jesus, but also the capital K kingdom. And if you read commentators who say, well, what's Paul talking about? Is he just saying, well, you're, not, you're gonna have an interrupted Christian life now, but you'll still get to heaven, or is it both? Is it just one of those kingdoms is both? Most commentaries will say Paul's probably referring to both because he doesn't make a delineation. Those who participate in these things will not enter into the kingdom of God. You will not enter into the kingdom kind of life here and now, and nor will you enter into it when Jesus returns on the final judgment which if you've been tracking in Ephesians should send off alarm bells a little bit because you're like, wait, several times, if memory serves me right, several times in Ephesians, Paul emphasizes that because you as a believer are in Christ, your salvation is secure. You can't unadopt yourself. You're now a son and daughter of God. You are now in Christ so there's nothing, there's no sin that you can do that can lead God to kind of flip the table and be like, oh, I adopted you, I forgave you all your sins, but I'm giving them back to you and I'm putting that guilt back on your record and I'm kicking you out of my household and I'm unadopting you, I'm writing you out of the family inheritance. But that seems to be what Paul is saying here. So what's up with this statement? Because it sounds like Paul is saying you're saved and secure in Christ unless you really screw up sexually and then, yeah, that's kind of like a red line and... Now you're back to square one. But this is not a verse about the potential to lose your salvation because of a mistake or even a struggle with particular sins. It's a warning against what I referenced earlier, kind of easy believism, where someone might say, yeah, I, I kind of want to go to heaven. I, like, that sounds great. I want to be a Christian. Sure, great. Oh, I can not go to hell and receive Jesus? Okay, what do I need to do? Say the sinner's prayer. Okay, uh, Jesus, forgive me. I want to go to heaven. That'd be great. And uh, I'll come to church once in a while. Thank you. Great. And now I just keep living my life on my own terms. I keep living into the same sinful patterns. And so Paul is saying, you know, let's be clear. Someone who, in a sense, talks the talk and maybe has said, oh, I made a profession of faith or I said the sinner's prayer, but their, the momentum of their lifestyle is, is not one striving towards holiness. It's being very comfortable and accepting that, oh, we're not, we're not perfect and, you know, I, yes, I've got some problems over here, but I'm pretty good over here and it kind of balances out. Paul says someone who's in that state is not going to inherit the kingdom of God, either now or later. Again, not because they were saved and now God's kicking them out. It's just if you live in that momentum, that's just actually evidence that you're not actually saved. Because what happens when we genuinely turn our lives over to Jesus? It's not that all the temptations from our sinful heart get removed. Some, some might, 
but many of them stay. There's still a war with our flesh, with the sinful impulses, but God puts his spirit within us who pulls us and gives us a thirst and a hunger towards growing in holiness. So there's a fight now. And now when I want to access pornography, when I'm tempted to um, hook up with someone or to use my body or my language in a way that's vulgar and demeaning, there is the spirit of God in me and saying, turn from that, flee. And there's a fight in me because at my best moments, I don't want to do this. So I might still make mistakes, but I'm never going to get to a place where I'm like, well, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to let this ride. I'm going to be pursuing repentance and I'm going to be looking at how do I turn away from this sin? Maybe I can't have internet access in my home. Maybe I can't hang out with certain people. Maybe I have to cancel my Netflix account. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, cut it out. Right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into heaven maimed than hell with your full body. Now that's Jewish hyperbole, but the point is we gotta take action on this stuff. And so Paul is saying here, not that Christians never do these sins, it's that true Christians won't persist in them. If you're genuinely born again, if you love God, the attitude of your heart will not be, I love you, God, I wanna honor you. Oh, you want, this? You want me to walk this way in terms of my body? Uh, no thanks. But that can happen, and there are some people who even will softly, direct, indirectly or directly even say, that actually is the good news of Christianity. You can be saved, and your sins are forgiven, and part of that good news is you can ha- kind of have a cavalier attitude to life because all your sins are forgiven. That's why Paul in verse 6 says, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. For because of such thing, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't be partners with them. He says, don't let people deceive you with empty words. Don't let people tell you that living into sexual immorality and vulgar, demeaning, crude, obscene ways of speaking about sex, that that's not a biggie. It's like, well, not a huge deal. Those hold huge consequences for your life and for the witness of the church and Christ and the gospel. And the modern version of this idea is simply this. You, can, you need to accept Jesus as Savior. He can save you from your sin and from hell, condemnation and all of that. And then at some point in the future, when you're ready, you can also embrace him as Lord. And the Bible never s- makes a separation of those two things. You embrace Jesus as Savior. You give up your life. And he saves you into a new life in him. Now he owns you. Now he gets to tell you how to live. And if he says, do this with your money, you don't say, thanks, but no thanks. Do this with your body, eh, thanks, but no thanks. Do this in your relationships to people who have harmed you, eh, thanks, but no thanks. Not saying it's easy, it's a struggle, but I say, God, I don't know how to do that right now, but give me strength, I wanna pursue holiness. And I go on the journey every day of my life until I see him face to face to pursue holiness. We can't take Jesus simply as Savior and not as Lord. That's a heresy, like a big H heresy word, false teaching called antinomianism, where again, Jesus saves you, now your sins are forgiven, so you can just kind of live however you want, there's no consequences. There will be more consequences for you if you deliberately walk in sin as a Christian. It's worse for you to be in a state of unrepentant sin as a Christian than if you're not a Christian. Do you know why? Because you're now a child of God 
and God disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. The standard's now higher. Paul says, for because of these kinds of things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. And when we think of God's wrath, many of us culturally think of Zeus, you know, angry old man in the sky, holding the lightning bolt, ready to strike us down. That's what God's gonna do. That's Greek philosophy. That's not biblical Christianity. The wrath of God is actually something slightly, it's, um, on the surface, it seems, it seems lessened, but it's actually more terrifying. In Romans 1, Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by, truth by their wickedness. And then he explains how the wrath of God is revealed. He doesn't say, God is just firing down lightning bolts, just frying people in their sin. He says three times, Romans, uh, in verses 24, 26, 28, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. God gave them over three times for emphasis. See, the terrifying prospect of experiencing God's wrath this side of eternity in this life is not that you're gonna get struck by lightning upon entering a church. It's that God is gonna take away any guardrails of protection that he has on your life that you might be operating with and not understanding that are actually in place. And God's gonna give you the full measure and allow you to experience the full consequence of your decisions. And to me, that's scarier. God's wrath is an unbridled, uncontrolled rage. It is ultimately saying, this is the path you want to go? I'll take the governator off your car. You can go at it 300 miles an hour if you want. But it's not going to be a rescue. And then after that, judgment. And so Paul wants to say to Christians, walking in sin has really, has very real consequences. Has very real consequences here and now and for eternity. And if we're in a place where we're genuinely, our hearts are just hardened, we, we're numb. We know we're participating in sin X, Y, or Z, but we really don't care that should be a place where we, sh that should raise a red flag in our hearts and we need to do business with God and say, God, am I actually saved? Like, have I actually turned my life over to you or am I just kind of like cafeteria Christian taking what I want? That scares me that I can live with this kind of pornea in my life or this kind of vulgarity or this kind of, um, you know, whatever, you fill in the blank and it doesn't even, there's not even a twinge of, conscience or anything. That's a scary place to be spiritually. And you should repent of that. You should turn from that and turn to God. And know that if you do, though, the turning to God will absolutely secure forgiveness and new life and restoration and healing. But with that comes now a new set of rules on how to live. But the new set of rules that are given for your life are because you, God, has a very high view of you in your life. It's not because he has a low view. If he had a low view, he'd say, I saved you, do whatever you want, I don't care. Drive your life into the ditch, I don't care. He doesn't. The rules now come into focus more and more because God has a high view of your life and what he wants to do through your life. And then he says, 
Therefore, don't partner with people who are involved in these things. And the word partner means, uh, I can't even read, symmetokoi, which is from the word symmetry. That's where we get our word symmetry from. It's a compound form, just means partners with or partnering um, fellow partners. And to partner with someone is to move into alignment with them. And Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you should avoid entanglements with people who are living in a direction that is not symmetrical with Jesus' calling. Now, please don't hear that as me saying, you're not supposed to have Christian friends. Or you're not supposed to have non-Christian friends, sorry. Doesn't, this does not mean you can't have non-Christian friends. Many of your Christian friends might be, or non-Christian friends might be very virtuous. Thank God for that, it's awesome. But it does mean we should not allow people who are living with a severe um, sinful disposition in their life to occupy a place of prominence in our lives. Kind of four levels of friendship, right? Four is on the peripheral crowds. One is like deep, deep intimacy. I would say probably if there's someone in your life who is um, really living counter Jesus, I, I think you have to be really careful about involving them in like that level one and two friendships for sure, maybe even three. Because as I was reading someone this week, you show me your five friends right now, I'll show you your future. You show me your five closest friends right now, I'll show you your future. Our friends have a, uh, a really strong forming um, presence in our lives. So that doesn't mean you don't have non-Christian friends, but you're picky with your non-Christian friends, nor does it mean just because someone says they're a Christian, they're automatically your friend. You look at their lifestyle, and if someone who claims Jesus, but is hurtling towards sin in a way that is very casual and cavalier, you distance yourself from them. Not because you're judging them or condemning them, but because, Paul says, you don't want to get exposure to a way of thinking that leads you down the road of saying, yeah, it's not really a big deal about what I do with my body, what I do with my speech, and oh, well, like, surround yourself with people who help you pursue Jesus faithfully and challenge you to keep growing. That's a good ambition and resolution to have in 2019. Be more discerning about who you allow into that inner circle. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship can light have with darkness? That's often... Um, applied to marriage, but it's really applied to any deep formative friendship. Don't be yoked. Don't, don't be in symmetry. Don't enter into a deep abiding relationship with someone who's not trying to pursue Jesus. Because even if they're trying to pursue something good, they're still going to be, you're going to be pulling on each other because you're yoked together. And so be very careful who you enter into those core relationships with. Okay, so in closing, two questions. And these are for you to answer on your own. The first is, is there even a hint of these things in your life? Is there even a hint of these things in your life? Things you watch, listen to, games you play, things you observed, events you attend, things you participate in, things you cultivate, accommodate, minimize that you're giving permission to exist in your life when you really shouldn't as a Christian? And then what are the steps you need to take to eliminate those things? Again, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And I know people who have said, I just can't have internet access in my home. I can't have a cell phone. I can't 
put myself in this kind of environment. I can't hang around these people under these conditions. I don't have the willpower to make good decisions. So I just, I just won't. That's a good and virtuous thing to do. That's honoring to God, and God will honor you when you take those big steps in your life. And the second question is, who are you in symmetry with? Who, is, who are you allowing to influence you in those inner spheres of relationships? And does your relationships move you towards what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and, admirer, and admirable? Do they help you pursue what is excellent and praiseworthy? And then if not, what steps do you need to take, not necessarily to cut the relationship off, but to begin to distance yourself from that relationship, to put new boundaries in place, to renegotiate what that relationship looks like if you're not able to enter into it in a way that is beneficial for you. So the temptation some of us face when it comes to Christianity is to have a faith where we're focusing on all the good stuff, quote unquote, all the positive, but none of the negatives. We don't wanna be a downer church, we don't wanna be downer Christians. We just want to emphasize God's love and grace and forgiveness, but today's text is especially challenging for those of us who would lean in that direction. And so if that's your theological default, to kind of minimize the thou shalt nots and just focus on the broad themes of God's forgiveness and grace and love, this is a text that has to be grappled with, and there's a lot at stake. You must take it seriously if you're genuinely pursuing Jesus' call on your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that fulfilling this scripture isn't just gonna come about from sheer willpower, but we're just gonna try and do better. We need to submit our lives to you, submit and give our sexuality over to you, our, our speech, every part of who we are, and we need your help, we need the Holy Spirit to do a work in us so that we begin to long and thirst for the things of God and, be, and to receive joy and are excited about pursuing holiness. Help us in that, God. Help us to walk away from that which um, demeans and degrade and destroys and disintegrates our bodies and our sexuality. Help us to have a high view of sex and that gift from you and to honor it regardless of what stage of life we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before I send you off for the benediction, uh, I just wanted to invite, um, sometimes these are difficult messages to respond to. If you have a Christian in your life, uh, same uh, gender, who you can go to and talk about some of these things if you need to, uh, it's important to do so. And I would say do so sooner rather than later. If you don't have someone like that in your life or if you're a guy and you want to come talk to me, uh, just email jeff at nelsoncovenant.com and uh, I'll prioritize meeting with you and talking through a plan on how, what it looks like to walk away from these things and walk into new life in Christ. If you're female, uh, we'll get you in contact with Jan. You can email her directly. If you don't have Jan's email, just email the office, office at nelsoncovenant.com, and Jan will sit down with you. We want to make sure that there is, that you know that there is supports in place that um, are non-condemnatory um, and uh, um, will uh, receive you in grace and offer um, not just prayer support, but help in a very practical way moving forward. So as you head into the new year, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, 
May you respond to Jesus' call, difficult though it may be. And as you respond with progressive obedience, may you discover that his commands are actually gifts that liberate us into freedom and truth and dignity. And may you enter into symmetry with others whose lives propel you further into that calling. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week and into the new year. And all God's people said, amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.